Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate his love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you have a Bible, open with me to Acts chapter 13. We've been doing a, um, this month or throughout March, I uh, started a bit of a mini-series on the book of Antioch. Uh, no, start again. I started a bit of mini-series on the church located in a city called Antioch through, that we see through the book of Acts. I'm not going to summarize what we've done so far because it would take too much time. But essentially, what I'm hoping to do is to draw something of a, a comparison between this church in Antioch and who God has called us here at Bayside um, to be. There have been associative words over the years where people have associated this church with us, uh, various aspects and qualities and characteristics that we see in the Antioch church that people believe are pertinent to us here at Bayside Church. I'm hoping to do those two things. So in one sense, while I want you to open the scripture and I'm going to teach today and hopefully you walk away with some good Bible knowledge, I also want to put on my lead pastor's hat and say, Bayside, this is who God has called us to be. And, uh, and we want to learn from their example and glean from that. So I'm going to uh, hopefully do that expediently today. We're going to pick up at the end of uh, chapter 12, verse 25. What I think I'll do is I'll, I'll just read these four or five verses and then we'll go back and, uh, and just look at, look at them verse one by one and see how we go. I just want to read uh, so you get the idea of where we're going. Acts 12, 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they were taking money to Jerusalem because there was a prophecy that there was going to be a famine in that area, okay? And so the Antioch church, we saw in previous weeks, the Antioch church gave money to help out this church, that the, the churches in Judea that they knew were about to face a challenge. They responded to that prophecy with generosity, okay? And Barnabas and Saul now have come back from Jerusalem. They returned and they took with them a guy called John, who was also named Mark, very common in this first century era for people to have a couple of names okay you can have a family name you can have a nickname you can have a, a greek name but a hebrew name and so it's very common you'll see in the book of acts this person who is also known as this we know that that's what happened with saul later somewhere along the line people start calling him paul and we don't really even know when that happens it's not like the day he got saved he started being called paul because right here it says saul he's still called saul now but somewhere along the line his name changes. We've got Peter, remember Simon Peter? Simon, Jesus said, but your name is now Peter. So he had another name. So this is very common to have a, a couple of names. So you can call me Jack or something, I don't know. Something, yes, something, flor something florally. Verse 1. So they're going back to Antioch. Now they're in the church at Antioch. Here we go. There were prophets and teachers. Among them were Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed hands on them and they sent them off. Go back to verse 1. Let's make a few points here. Verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. This church, just to remind you, because it has been two weeks, 
this is written at a period of time that's probably 13, 14 years after Jesus has gone, okay? So in the early, early 40s, this church has been around now for a couple of years. Saul and Barnabas have been there for one year. And after a year of teaching, we see now that these guys have some type of established leadership group. They're not just relying on outside people to come and minister to them. In the previous chapter, they had Agabus come from Jerusalem who prophesied, there's going to be a famine. Okay, so we know that Jerusalem are an established church. They've got recognized leadership. But no, here in Antioch, they're maturing, they're growing, they, they are recognized among them, people who are prophets and teachers. Now, while all Christians should be able in some degree to teach, in some degree, you should be able to explain something about God to someone else. Something. Anything that's good, right? Anything that's right. You should, in a sense, be able to teach. While, in a sense, all Christians should be able to prophesy, because prophesy is just hearing what God's saying. Like Georgie did. I just felt yesterday like God told me this. Or like Kay did today. I just felt yesterday God was saying this, and I think it might be helpful for you to hear as well. Okay, that's prophesying. All of us should be able to do that. But here we see that they are recognizing people who don't just, aren't just able to do these things, but they operate in what we'd call the office of that ministry. And I can't go into detail about that today. But essentially, they're recognized as significant weighty gifts there in that area. And what's interesting is the variety of people that we have here. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger. Niger is actually a nickname that means dark. Okay. So, um, obviously, a, a, a kind term where you might think, well, Jazz, not PC to say that nowadays, but uh, there was something probably about him that was darker than everyone else, and they gave him a nickname called Niger, possibly. Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene is in north of Africa. Manan, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, we don't know how he was brought up with, Tetra, uh, with Herod, whether he was royalty, whether he was a slave that was brought up in that household, that was, had the same wet nurse, we don't really know, but having been brought up with Herod, what we do know is probably in his 60s or 70s. And then we've got Saul, who we think at this stage was probably a young man, maybe in his 30s, we don't really know that for sure, all we know is that at this stage in his life, he said, I was advancing in my studies beyond other people of my own age. And normally an old man wouldn't say that. If you're 70, you probably wouldn't say, yes, I'm advancing beyond others of my own age. You know, it's probably something a younger person would say. So what do we see here? We see here quite a range of people. Uh, they're all male, which is a subject for another day. And as we keep going in the book of Acts, we have far more female ministers named and females who prophesy, etc. Just not here yet. But uh, while we have that, we also have, seem to have quite a variety in age, in location, uh, where these people are from. We see here... Uh, a real diversity of not only ethnicity and probably a social diversity, but also a diversity in gifting. We have people who are both prophets and teachers, people of the Spirit and people of the Scripture. And there's something about this incredible dynamic of having diversity with unity that is a picture of great maturity. You know, diversity is a bit of a buzzword in our culture at the moment. How many of you know that? All right, and I suspect that this church did not have a diversity program set up that allowed this to happen. I suspect they didn't have a quota policy, but I suspect that they were mature enough to recognize that diversity, that God is multifaceted. God is complex, He is multicolored, and so His community is multifaceted, and we look more and more like Jesus as a multifaceted people, a diverse community of people be who they are in unity with the head of the body 
okay? See, it's one thing to say we would like diversity in our society, but diversity without unity is chaos. Diversity without unity is division. And there needs to be a unity, which basically means a common vision and common core values. I mean, values on the outskirts maybe can differ, but common core values that bring unity. It's one of the differences between something that's complicated and something that's complex. Some of us have families and relationships and businesses and we've been in places that's just complicated because there's a lot of stuff going on and it doesn't seem to work together. That's what diversity is without unity. It's just darn complicated. It's hard work, it drains you, and it's just too hard, mate. It's diverse, but it's not unified. Complication is different to something being complex because the Great Barrier Reef has great diversity, but it's beautiful. It works together in harmony. God has created a complex world and what makes it complex and not complicated is that it works together in harmony and in unity. When creation works in harmony, the complexity is beautiful. And you wouldn't... That's it, I'm taking it off. I'd like to say I wore this just to make that point, but... um. And that's not, not quite true. But diversity and unity together. And that's part of what we see here in this church. And probably all it was doing was reflecting its local community. Because Antioch, as I explained in the first couple of weeks, was a very multi-ethnic city. Okay? Well, Victor Harbour's not. You look at our censuses, sensei, we are, we are a very, very Caucasian area, uh, particularly in regards to many capital cities of the world. You tra- Don't! Take, take it down. Don't trust. Um, but to, to it, it was a diversity that represents well the area. You know, so that's all I'm saying, whatever. But it's one of the things we've learned as we've watched this church. If they gathered around a common vision, that's what unity, a, a common vision and core values, one of the things we've learned about this church over the previous couple of weeks, some of the things that they have valued are the same things that we do. They're a church that valued growth through the gospel. One of the first things we saw about this church is that it grew greatly in number because the gospel was being preached. It valued growth in the gospel. And I'd like to say as a church that we are very comfortable with growing because of the gospel. That growth is not something we're scared of, but growth in the gospel is a good thing. Secondly, we see that the church in Antioch values gathering together. When Paul and Barnabas came, it said they gathered the church for a year and they just constantly taught them. A church that believes in coming together for ministry. But together with that, it was a church that believed in giving and giving beyond its borders. Because when the prophetic word came about a famine in Jerusalem, this church didn't say, oh, we're just introspective. Who gives us stuff about the world out there as long as we're happy in our gathering? As long as our gathering is good, that's all that matters. No, no, no. Yes, we believe in gathering, but we also believe in giving and going with what we have. Yet it was also a church, number four, that believed in government. Because when they sent their gift to the Jerusalem church... They sent their gift to the elders there. They recognized the leaders of the local church in Jerusalem and said, guys, we rec- recognize your authority in, this, in your jurisdiction. Therefore, we're not just going to scatter this money everywhere that we see a need. We're going to come bring it to you and say, you know this church better than anyone. We submit it to you. Okay? So recognize that. When, when, when the typhoon Haiyan came through the Philippine and Philippines a number of years ago in a place called Tacloban, some of you may recognize this 
the, the old, older white guy on the screen, Paul Chase, who heads up a whole network of churches, he sent a video of, around and, and uh, we gave to that, to that typhoon. And one of the things he said was this, he said, listen, when all the aid, when, when this whole buzz about this cyclone is gone and the cameras are gone and the aid organisations are gone and people have taken their photos and handed out their stuff for their, for their plaques and their websites and they're all gone, he said, the people that will be left behind are the local churches and the local pastors, those local communities who will be there week after week, day after day, month after month, year after year, supporting those people physically, emotionally, spiritually, practically. And so even in then, when we gave to something like that, you know, there's good, better and best in giving. And I see one of the best ways to give as we administrate funds somewhere else is to give in a place that touches spirit, soul, body and mind and does so long term. You know, first aid is great. That is good. Any giving is good. But we gave through that channel because we recognize there are people that God has ordained living in that area who know it better than anyone. And it might not mean we get the prettiest photos to make ourselves look good, but long-term we know we've made a good investment in people who will be there long-term. They recognize government, and so we move on. Verse 12. No, verse 2. Jumping right ahead. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, this group of prophets and teachers, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Set apart for me. From here on in, as you read the book of Acts, Saul and Barnabas, who are prophets and teachers, or at least they're in that mix, are now known as apostles. From now on in, that, that they start being called apostles. They're the first people outside of Jerusalem that become known as apostles. They were sent from the Antioch church uh, because the Holy Spirit had spoken. And something I was just reminded of this morning. This, I'd, I'd be really interested to know how the Holy Spirit said this. They were worshipping the Lord, fasting, this group of prophets and teachers. Were there others there? I don't really know. And then it just says, Holy Spirit said. How did that happen? Did they all hear an audible voice from heaven, like at Jesus' baptism? Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. Did they, oh, okay, that's obviously, did they hear that? Did a dove come in the room and they, a dove spoke to them like Jesus' baptism? Did one of them just pick it up in their spirit and say, I feel like the Holy Spirit's saying, yes, I do too, yes, I do too. Did someone have a vision? Did someone have a trance? We don't know. We don't know. But somehow the Holy Spirit said to them, they came out of that room saying, God spoke to us. But what's interesting to me is that this is not the first time God had spoken to Saul about being set apart for ministering in the nations. Eleven years earlier, Paul had encountered Saul, had encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. Okay? Jesus had met with him and a guy called Ananias came to pray for him. And Ananias prophesied over him and said, Paul, God is going to send you to the Gentiles, this Jew's Jew, a full-on true blue Jew's Jew who wouldn't eat with Gentile people. Ananias said, I'm prophesying this over you, mate. You're going to eat with those filthy, non-Jewish people in the future. A few weeks later, Saul's in Jerusalem after his conversion and he goes to the temple and it says in Acts 22, he has a trance. He falls into a trance or a trance. You know, it depends on where you're from. And he has a trance and... <laughs> sounds like music. <laughs> He's in the temple. 
forget it. Um, <laughs> trance, obviously trance. Uh, he has a trance and Jesus speaks to him and says, I've called you to declare my name to the Gentiles. He has a personal word from Jesus. He has a prophet come to him and speak over him. And then nothing happens for 11 years. He disappears. He goes into Tarsus and we don't hear from him at all until Barnabas picks him up and says, mate, come to Antioch with me. And then here, in this context, somehow, Holy Spirit speaks. It was not the first time Holy Spirit spoken. There's a number of lessons we learn from this. You often hear me speak about, before we take big risks in hearing God, or take big risks in doing things, get the witness of two or three witnesses. Confirmation of two or three witnesses. This was not just a one-off speak. This was God saying something that he'd said 11 years earlier to Paul. Number two, we've got to learn that sometimes when God speaks to us, there is a time before that thing comes into fruition. Paul had a prophet come to him. Paul had Jesus appear to him in a trance in the temple. And yet it was still not his time until 11 years later when Barnabas picks him up and this prayer meeting takes place. There's a lot of lessons here about cooperating with God. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, to the work to which I have called them. I can imagine being in that prayer meeting and going, no Holy Spirit, they're not your preachers, they're ours. Set apart for me, oh, I thought they were our prophets. I thought they were our teachers. And you want us to set them aside for you? Yeah. Yeah. They, this was, I wonder how much of a test this was for this church to, it's one thing to put your hands in your pocket and you say, here's some funds that you can send with you, as opposed to saying, we're willing to send our favourite preachers. Paul the Apostle has been with us for a year, we're happy to send him because we understand we don't own him, we don't have sticky hands. How many of you want to be, be known as someone who doesn't have sticky hands? We're going to go, Lord, everything you've given us, it, whatever you've given us, it's yours. I, I want that to be somehow part of my reputation. I don't have sticky hands. I don't cling on. Jesus, not a, not a cling on. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus had this. This is something in, in Philippians 2 where it says, although he was in very nature God, he did not consider that something to be grasped. He didn't hang on to something that God had given him because he knew if God asks me to relinquish it, I will. And that's where the divine let, relinquished his rights to become fully man. And I think there's something in that for us of not having sticky hands. And, and this, it's one thing to hear God say, I want you to be generous in this area. It's another thing to say, I obey, Lord. We do it. And so they set apart Barnabas and Saul. Again, we see a generous church. You know, one of our distinctives here at Bayside, and it's not a boast, and I even struggle talking about it because as much as I might want to get your attention wearing this shirt, I don't like talking about myself too much. Too much. No, I don't. It's a struggle in our marriage, so don't, br don't bring it up. Um, but one of the distinctives of, of us as a church is that we probably more than other churches here in this region at least, uh, region at least, we understand that Jay and I are called to minister beyond our borders. 
I should stand over this side when I say that, shouldn't I? Because I'm Bayside's over here. And um, teaching's over there, Bayside, Lee Pastor had on here. And we don't travel because we love it. In fact, it actually hurts. As much as the meals might be nice, put on a bit of weight, we're stuffed last couple of days. We don't do it because it, we, it gives us an opportunity to get away from the kids, although, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, we travel beyond our borders because we believe the Holy Spirit has spoken. And we believe He's spoken not only to us personally, through our life, in personal encounters, like Paul had at the temple, not only through prophetic voices that have said to us, this is what God has called you to, but we know that God has spoken to us as a leadership group, and I, I'm so grateful that we have that understanding amongst our leadership team. Some time ago, probably a good seven years ago, we sat down as an eldership team, and we said, you know, at least a, a tenth of our Sundays, at least a tithe of our Sundays, we are very confident to sow Chad and Jay into other areas to minister elsewhere, at least five Sundays a year, because we want to not just hear what the Holy Spirit says, we want to put legs to that. And that is one of the possible distinctives of this church that you, we may not see elsewhere. We don't do it because we love it, and we don't do it just because there's demand, because my parents asked me when, I, you know, when we got back the other day, did you, know, did you meet any new people or have any invites to other areas? And you know, that happens all the time for us. And that's not a bo- this is why I don't like talking about it, because I don't want that to sound boastful. But there are people that, you know, three years in a row, they've invited us to come, and we just want to hear Holy Spirit on that. And we've said no to the same people. Three, three years in a row that live in really nice areas we'd like to travel to because they're warmer than here. Um, <laughs> but there's no glitz or glamour in that. We want to, and, and I only share this so that I hope you take this on for yourself as well. What has God spoken to you that you can say, Lord, I want to confidently walk in that calling? And to walk in the calling that you have means to say no to some things, but to say yes to others. And um, we are the better because of it. And like I think what you said, Georgina, is that we as a church will be the better for that. Let's have a look at verse 3. This is okay. This is a bit of a, this is a bit like this. And then I'll get a bit la over there, okay? <laughs> verse 3. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. There's an old phrase that sometimes people use that say, you know, some people are sent and other people just went. And oftentimes that's used disparagingly. Um, but I don't like to do many things disparagingly at all, unless I'm really joking. But um, I've thought about that. Those Some are sent and some went. Just going without being commissioned by somebody does not necessarily mean it's less than. Because this whole church in Antioch began when people in Jerusalem just went and preached the gospel. No one was commissioned from Jerusalem, had their hands laid on them to go plant a church in Antioch. They just went because the persecution had happened. This whole church existed because people just went without being commissioned by or recognized by others. So I'll never say that disparagingly. Some are sent and some just went. That's not that. But there is something powerful about having this commissioning and recognizing from others because both can work and a common leadership challenge for pastors and we face this within our first year or so and have since then 
is facing the challenge of whether or not you endorse something that you're not fully convinced of. It's a real challenge. This leadership team were fully convinced that God had called Paul and Barnabas. I'd love to know how. Again, the Holy Spirit spoke. They were fully convinced and so they laid hands on them. Bible says don't be hasty in doing that. You need to be sure. You lay hands on someone. This is a public thing. You need to be sure that that's God. A challenge that sometimes we face in leadership is when you don't sense that same conviction and yet somebody wants to go and do something. It's a real challenge. You shouldn't envy, envy that when it happens. There's been opportunities we've had over the years where people have been part of our church and they've felt to church plant, to plant another church just while we're on this, on this subject. Um, Dan and Ness Harbottle, remember the guys from Mount Barker, I glorify were like that. And uh, they'd felt after three months' time, it's now their time to ch church plant. And we as a whole eldership said, absolutely. We, total, we, we feel that that is right. And they've gone through their challenges and it wasn't an easy ride and blah, 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 blah. But we felt that was right. And we publicly endorsed, lay hands on, prayed for, we're with these guys. We, it seems right to the Holy Spirit and us that this is the right thing. And there's also times where people have done a similar thing and we haven't felt that that's right. And that's a tough challenge because when you don't feel a conviction that it's right, don't sense the Holy Spirit saying to you that this sits right with me. You also don't want to have the, the pressure of publicly endorsing and praying and laying hands on. And it's not to say that that's wrong. There's a difference, you know, the whole sent and went thing. Both can work. And we've faced this challenge before. I've been asked to marry people before. Tough. People that I believe us to be together, I'm like, I've got no problem in marrying you two. Other people that I didn't feel right about. One, I actually talked out of getting married, which was a real good thing in hindsight. And one, I didn't, and it was a real challenge for me to say, I just don't feel like I'm the guy to do this. Please, I know you guys feel it is right, and don't take this as, I'm saying, thus saith the Lord. It's just, thus saith me. I don't have a green light. And on that one instance where I said that, that was a real emotional challenge for me. That couple, still together, awesome couple, great marriage, kids. It wasn't like, I'm wrong, you're right. We're both right. You heard God say something, do it, and I will not stop you. In the same way, if I don't have a yes or no from God, please don't try to stop me from doing what's, what I feel I have a green light or uh, an orange light for. But it's a real challenge, and you'll probably face that. Some of you may face that in your family where you have kids that you love or people in your family and like, I'm invited to a particular event and I love them, but I just know my presence of publicly endorsing that particular event, I just can't do that. Please don't ask me to do that thing. And some of you have faced that challenge. It is a tough one relationally. And we've just got to, I think, give everyone the grace to know that we are each responsible for hearing God and following His voice for ourselves. Amen? Oh, you don't have, okay, if you don't agree with that, so I hope you do. Because here's, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that at the start of this church, there were people that planted this church because they were just doing what they were doing. They had no endorsement from anyone else. They were just scattered and they went and they started a work and it was awesome. 
And now here, later in the chapter, we have Holy Spirit speaking to a group and a public endorsement. And you know what? This became awesome. Either one can work. It's not that one is right and one is wrong, but there is a both and. We must be open to, uh, we must be open to both. And I want to say just, if God has called you to do something, if God has spoken, I don't know how many, how many times I've sat with people and I've said, listen, whatever you're saying doesn't resonate with me. Please don't ask me to get on board with something that I don't have a green light for, but you must. You must. If it is right for you, then please, you must do that. You must be accountable to God for what He's called you to do because I know I'll be accountable to God for what He's called me to do. So I trust that that was a bit of uh, fluff there. But... Um, there's something in there about that commissioning that takes place there. But the point today is none of that. I now start my message. The point today is this. We see here a church who operated both in and from God's presence. All that administrative stuff aside... We see a church worshipping the Lord, fasting and praying. You know the phrase there, worshipping the Lord? Verse 2. In the literal translations, it says ministering to the Lord. Ministering to the Lord. You know when we sang earlier, worship may be good for you, but it's not for you. Worship is good for you, and it's fitting, and it's right, and it will do you well to worship Him. It will do you well. Chains will break. Good will come to you. Yes, it, release, it releases pheromones. No, not pheromones. Um, what's the, what's the feel-good emotion? What's the feel-good hormone? Endorphins. Yeah, but, pheromones. That is totally the wrong one. What's the feel-good one? Endorphins. Dopamine! <laughs> Dopamine! Singing, <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> We've just had a week without the kids. Um, <laughs> I've got pheromones coming off everywhere. Um, it relieves. Oh. Singing, singing is good for you. Worship is good for you, but it's not for you. Worship is ministering to the Lord. Yeah, we do, it we do it when we don't like the songs. We do it when we don't like the music. We do it when we're not in the mood. Because God is worthy. We, worship is ministering to the Lord. We don't come together for a sing-along. We come together to worship and adore Him. And there is great value in that. This is a church that drew near to God because He loves it. It was a church that fasted. And I can't, I'm not going to go into that, day, but, but something about fasting simply means it's something that intensifies your prayer life or your worship life. It's saying no to something that we may say a bigger yes to Him. Fasting is not twisting God's arm. It's not hunger striking. It's not saying, I'm not going to do anything until, you know, I'm not going to eat, Lord, until you do this for me. Now, that's manipulation. We don't do that. Fasting is about giving up one thing and filling that space, okay, with pushing more into God. Okay, it's filling that space with Him. And it's something that you can do anytime you like. Anytime you like. But here is, we see it's something that they did as a group. 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, Holy Spirit spoke to them. And I had to ask myself this morning as I was going through this, when's the last time we did that? Chad, when's the last time you heard me call people of Bayside to fast, to push in for something? And I had to look through my, no, I, it might, I think it was over 10 years ago. And either I've not heard God and he's been trying to speak or I've just been totally ignorant or somewhere I've missed him along the line or I don't, I don't know, but that seems like too long for me. And I just thought about this, that just this morning. I don't have any more to say about that. Some churches do it every year. Some churches, uh, many of you from a traditional background know that this season right now, it's 40 days before Easter, is called Lent. And you can forget the religiosity of it for a moment and just accept the fact that the heart of that is about having a period of time where people press into God every year. So it's a, it's a discipline. Because how many of you know sometimes if you just wait for Holy Spirit to speak, quote, you might go 10 years and you've never done it. And then you look back and you go, maybe that's not Holy Spirit, maybe that's me. Stay tuned. Jake said last week that there's always room for us to get closer to God. There's always room for us to get closer to God. And that being closer to God is not a geographical thing. It's not a proximity thing. Geographically, proximity, legally, I'm as close to Jay today as I was on the day we are married. It's not, but I'm, we're closer together now relationally than what we were 20 years ago. It's the same with God. We're not closer to Him proximally. We're not closer to Him legally. You can't get any closer to God legally than what you are in Christ. You are in Jesus, seated at the right hand, fully engaged. You are in Jesus Christ. You can't get closer to that legally. But that closer is a relational term, that we can go deeper into Him. We can experience more of Him, aspects of Him we would not seen before. We can become consciously more aware of Him, so that what is ours legally becomes ours in a lived-out, literal sense. And this is where, for us... <laughs> The identity of the beloved bride comes in. A church that knows the glory of God, that understands, is hungry for the presence of God, that knows what it is to be with Him. For us, it's the picture of the bride that paints that picture. Our pillar here says, with Christ as our husband and friend, we embrace passionate worship and we cultivate a culture of honour, intimacy and authenticity. I don't have time to go into the scriptures. I'll just finish in three minutes. two minutes all through the scripture the picture of worship and the picture of sexual intimacy are joined when God wanted to describe one of the ways he relates to his people he did he talked about as a husband and a bride and that's not a New Testament thing okay it goes all the way through the prophets okay all, all the way through the the Old Testament um, Moses I think was the first guy to start it as is often the case and in describing worship, when his people committed idolatry, they worship other gods, he said, you cheated on me. Having worship with other gods was like having sex with other people. It's that idolatry is actually adultery. He drew this picture of sexual intimacy and worship. And so you, you kind of just imagine, but don't imagine too much, 
he paints this picture of uh, intimacy with him being like that intimacy of a bride and her husband. And that is a precious thing, and it's a powerful thing. Because worship, like sex, has the power, it's not just a physical thing. Worship is all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what worship is. It's not just, oh, worship, I lift my hands, there you go, it's physical. Yeah, it involves something physical, but it's also emotional. There's also something far deeper than that. And worship, the more you worship something, the more you become like that thing. And it's one of the ways that sex is quite similar. It's not just a physical thing. There's that physics, there's that emotion involved. It's one of the reasons that married couples, the longer they're together, this might scare some of you, the longer married couples are together, the more they end up looking like each other. <laughs> Watch out. That's why some of you are glad you got married later in life. Um, because there is a, there's something about that intimacy that is beyond just the figure. It's one of the reasons, possibly, that God uses that picture. Sex is a powerful thing. Worship is a powerful thing. And so God, God says to guard it and to treat it with care. What's the point? The point is that a worshipping community is one who can approach God naked with no shame. See, worship's not about impressing God. Worship's about stripping it all bare and going, Lord, you know who I am? I've got nothing to prove. Naked and no shame. One of the greatest gifts, I might, might share some of this later to the new, newbies, but one of the things I say to our leaders, and I've, you've heard me say a number of times, one of the greatest gifts you can give to those who follow you, or those around you, is your, just your own personal sense of security. Because when you're confident, when you've got nothing to prove, most of the bad decisions we, life, we make in life are because we're insecure and we've got something to prove. We react. See, your politicians do it all the time. People in relationships do it all the time. Reacting people. No, no, no. We are responsive people. When you're secure, you don't react. You just know how to respond. And one of the things about worshipping God is that thing of saying, you know, like a husband and a wife, I'm naked before you, Lord. I've got nothing to prove. I can worship God with energy and enthusiasm and strength, but it's not because I'm trying to get his attention. It's because I already have his attention. It's because I know I can just be myself amongst him. Passionate worship. And amongst that, we cultivate a culture of honour, intimacy, and authenticity. One of the things about that picture, one of the things about the picture of the husband and the bride when it's operating properly, is there is that, that intimacy. Into me you see. When you've got nothing to prove, you've also got nothing to hide. And I want you to know that as worshippers of God, you're, you should, you're safe with Him. This was a community that did not fast to get God's attention. They fasted because they wanted to draw nearer to Him. They wanted to go further in their relationship with Him. They got nothing to hide. In that environment, God speaks intimacy, authenticity, and honour and respect. And one of the things about intimacy, and if, maybe if you guys could come in and that will help me slow down and stop, One of the things about pursuing intimacy with God that we see in this scripture is that intimacy does not equal introspection. Intimacy does not in itself equal introspection. I'm over introspective Christianity on its own. And while I understand that we have a personal relationship with God, we draw near with Him in intimacy, as this church did that, it was that environment 
that God said, now go beyond yourself. It was in that environment God said, you've got a world out there to reach. It was that environment God gave them creative ideas that set apart from me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. It's in that environment of intimacy that they trusted their husband to say, Lord, we will do whatever you tell us to do. We'll go wherever you tell us to go. Intimacy does not mean introspective Christianity. It's one of the things I love about what's the name and what's his name from Who's He What's It? <laughs> Who are the guys from Mozambique? Heidi Baker. Heidi and Rolly Baker, guys who just preach on the intimacy of God and the love, and yet they reach multiple tens of thousands of people in Mozambique, planting churches all the place, because they take that intimacy, that security that they have, and that security. The gospel gives us shoes of readiness. It is the gospel of peace. They're not shoes of peace. Okay, they're shoes of readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. When I'm at peace with God, when I know He's at peace with me, when I have intimacy with Him, I put my shoes on and I'm ready to go because I know I'm safe because I'm at peace with God. They're not shoes of peace. I have the gospel of peace and with that gospel come shoes that make me ready to go. Before we close today, I want to give us an opportunity to hear God speak to you. So why don't we just draw near to him one more time. Can you guys help us with that? And let's trust Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Why don't you stand with me? I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.